Hi everyone, I'm Cindy Mooring, the Founder and Executive Chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Walton College of Business, and this is the Business Integrity School Podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, and most importantly, in your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real-world experience as a senior executive, so if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome. Let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for another episode of the Business Integrity School. As you know, we're in season six, and we're talking about all things related to speaking up and creating a speak up culture within companies and how to do that. And today we have with us a very special guest who's had to do that at more than one company. I'm really excited to introduce to you today, Amber Williams. Hey, Amber. Hello. Good to see you. Good. Well, I'm really glad to see you. It's wonderful to reconnect and have this conversation. So Amber and I uh, actually worked together at Walmart for many years where she had a very storied career in the legal department. And after that, she became a VP at L Brands. And then L Brands uh, moved into kind of separating itself into a couple of different companies. And now she's the Deputy General Counsel and uh, SVP at Bath and Body Works. So you've really seen a lot Amber, I would say in in your career and at a number of very well-known companies, but could you just start by telling the audience a little bit about yourself and kind of how you found yourself um, in these positions at these great companies? Well, sure. I I graduated from law school uh, when there really was no um, sort of VP of ethics and compliance or ethics and compliance functions really outside of regulated industries. Right. So it certainly was not my aspiration or goal um, to do this kind of work, uh, but certainly feel like um, my path aligned with my purpose uh, through a lot of good luck and, and, and good circumstances. I started out in-house. I've been in-house my entire career as an attorney um, at small companies, first a startup uh, and then uh, private equity owned. And after and during the dot-com boom and bust uh, yeah. era, and it was in Houston when um, Enron occurred, And so uh, certainly kind of came up as a baby lawyer at the time that sort of the modern corporate ethics foundation was being built under Sarbanes-Oxley and and was in-house in Houston and certainly well aware of all of the news surrounding that. Um, And my first sort of experience with internal investigations was with a company in Houston. Um, And then I went to Walmart, uh, really, I wanted to work at at a big company. Uh, and started out in the real estate uh, legal department, um, but I did some compliance-related work in the real estate function. Uh-huh. And then Walmart was centralizing more of its compliance functions. I had an opportunity uh, to move in a legal role, supporting compliance directly. Uh-huh. Uh, that was the beginning of my love of compliance work and understanding of how broad and interesting it can be. And one of the things that I just really enjoy about this kind of work is that you're trying to solve problems and help a company be successful and profitable, uh, really in complying with regulations that often had not even contemplated what the business does, how it operates, right? So it's a it's a fun sort of puzzle to always be working on um, and really for me feeling like I'm adding value uh, to the business, um, doing things that I, I think are interesting yeah. for me as well as a lawyer. And so um, that path into compliance at Walmart, which then led me into a role where I was doing investigations and where I first started working with you, uh, supporting some of the ethics work. 
And then I went back to real estate, but then was able to get back into um, leading uh, the U.S. compliance legal function uh, at Walmart. Yeah. Um, it was the work that I did at Walmart, frankly, that made me um, a, an, a, a candidate for a job at L Brands uh, leading in ethics and compliance. And so I was, I was fortunate to get that opportunity. It was a difficult decision um, to change after being at Walmart for almost 12 years, um, but it was also an opportunity to, to lead um, yeah. a function uh, that I that I felt was was an appropriate uh, change for me to make. And so right. I've been right. here uh, for four years and, and um, really I'm in this same kind of role, uh, but the name of the company has changed and the context of the company has changed. Yeah. Uh, but I've, but pretty much have been been here. So I've been through a lot of change and I think it's also interesting to sit in these roles as organizations change, as the world changes, COVID, you know, the economic sort of disruption, the social unrest that's also impacted. It impacts how people show up at work as well. So all of those things have been part of, you know, my development and learning uh, in this role. So it's it's been interesting and fascinating. And, and for me, it's always new and fresh um, because there's always new challenges associated with with change yeah. um, and, and growth. So that's you- how I came to be here. Yeah, and you joined all brands at at a time now with the benefit of 2020 hindsight <laughs> was um, on the verge of facing some of its own really big challenges in this space of sort of ethics and compliance and um, you know thinking about integrity and so you you've really had a chance to see a number of different companies kind of work through that and how do you build cultures and how do you do that uh, in an effective way so that um, everyone can show up at work and bring their whole selves to work and feel comfortable speaking up right when they do see something that doesn't seem to be kind of quite right. Um, but before we go on and talk about that, you mentioned that you were in Houston uh, when Enron happened. And this semester being all about speaking up, where all, we also have the opportunity, I've, I've had the opportunity to interview Sharon Watkins, uh, who was the whistleblower from Enron for a podcast episode. She's also going to be speaking to campus. So we're very excited about that. But from your perspective, just take a slight little detour on this question. What was it like to be in Houston when that erupted? You know, it was really fascinating because, you know, Enron was the company that everybody admired and that people wanted to work for and at. And um, I remember as a young lawyer, I worked at a startup and one of our investors in the startup was an Enron subsidiary. And I remember going to the building a couple of times for some meetings and, and, um, and, just being excited to be uh, in the space and feeling energized and sort of in awe at what Enron was and represented. So um, to see it come crashing down really, really quickly, very dramatically, and to know I personally knew people who were impacted uh, by that. I, I, you know, it really made me think differently about you know work and and corporations and and um, you know I think that we can be really enamored. Uh, with profile. Um, and, and I think there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But when you go join an organization, you don't always know exactly what right. you're signing up for. But to understand like the role that each of us plays individually um, to contributing to the integrity of an organization and that how we use our voice, how we show up yeah. is part of, you know, it, it, it becomes infectious in, in many ways and can be positive. But also if you see things and you don't speak up, 
Um, sometimes that can be detrimental. And if you see things and you do speak up, sometimes that doesn't, you know, necessarily play out the way that you would, you would like. And yeah. so that's, you know, I think that's all part of the story, but to me, it's part of the learning. And so right. as I do this work, I can look, I can look back at, at that very differently than I certainly was experiencing it as a young professional in Houston, where it was really, I was confused, right? It was really confusing to me um, that, that something so big, so appearing, yeah, right. so stable and so profitable could kind of evaporate. Yeah, um, right. And so much, you know, pain uh, and turmoil in its wake. Yeah. And it has huge ramifications um, for the country, for the law, uh, for employers. Yes, huge. And for individuals, I think it's a good, especially young, like you were, you know, sort of enamored with the awe of being in the presence of this, you know, world's seventh largest company at the time, right? But to realize that things aren't always what they seem. So be careful. Don't assume, right? Ask questions, remain curious, make sure that there's kind of sort of data to support what you're, what you're seeing. And all that kind of comes back to, to culture. Sometimes you don't know necessarily until you get in and you can try to ask all the right questions and you try to figure things out as best you can. And then you kind of really have to remain curious when you get into a company to understand the culture fully and make sure that it is what you, what you think that it, what it is and that it allows with your own, right? Kind of values and purpose and, and reason. So you've now been at some small companies that you've talked about, and then you jumped all the way up to Walmart and then off to L Brands and now Bath and Body Works. So when you step back and just think about culture, corporate cultures um, for companies and no company's perfect that, you know, have all kind of had issues. Every company does along the way. Um, what do you think are some of the similarities that you've seen within companies when it comes to corporate culture and trying to create a speak up culture? What are some similarities? And then we'll talk about differences that you've seen. Yeah, I mean, I think the similarities um, are just about how much tone at the top drives, you know, the culture and, um, and how important leadership is, right? And so regardless of the culture, uh, it's shaped by that. But I also um, I think about how similar it is that what is happening in the world influences the culture mm. inside of a company, right? Yeah. We're not insulated from what is happening in the world because companies are made up of people. Right. And so every individual is bringing their perspectives, their experiences, their desires and goals and aspirations to work. And so really what culture is, is a combination of sort of the internal ethos of an organization Mm -hmm. uh, plus, you know, sort of the consolidated um, experiences of of people and how they show up and what's important to them. Because what drives and changes culture often is the individuals within the organization who are speaking up or who are asking for something different than maybe what the organization has offered historically. And, and some of that can be around, you know, gender diversity, racial diversity, inclusivity right. around all manner of things. I mean, when I started my career, it was not common for companies to have associate resource groups, employee right. resource groups, right? But now that is an expectation, mm-hmm. um, particularly of our larger organizations. And so I think what is really the most common theme is that culture evolves. It is not stagnant. What you walk into may not be, you know, what you end up with. And some of that is not controlled by the company. 
itself, right? And so leadership, tone at the top, all of that is important. Tone at the middle, we know is incredibly yeah. important, but also there are some grassroots uh, types of events that happen in companies that can shift and shape culture. Yeah. And strengthen it, influence it, you That's know, right. improve it for the future. But, you know, one of the differences that I've seen pop up uh, is, well, I should say arises out of now this expectation, I would say, that employees have of their leaders to weigh in on these social issues one way or another. I mean, Disney, we, we've seen, they got caught right smack dab in the middle of, you know, trying to figure out what to say, to say something or to not say something. And, you know, without, without going into the whole Disney story about what they did, there is this sense these days that employees are expecting their, their leaders um, to take a stand on social issues uh, to some extent. And a difference, I would say, is how leaders are choosing to do that. Have you, have you seen that at all? And, and how do you think that is affecting corporate, corporate culture? You know, it's interesting. And I, I think when you're, you know, when you are part of an organization, you can see multiple sides of that, right? Which is, you know, I think companies should, you know, be true to who they are and what they do. Yeah, right. And so everything is not for every organization to right. take a position on in public. Um, but if it, if it is important because it really ties to who you are as an organization and the kinds of things that you talk about and the things that you've committed to, then I think you do. I, I think it's a challenging, you know, place to be yeah, in that um, there are always going to be those who are in favor of, of what positions or what is said or not said. And, and I, I mean, I don't know that there's always right and wrong there. I, I no. think that there are choices to be made. Um, and there are always sort of risks and benefits associated with whatever choice is made. And I don't, I mean, I don't have an opinion on what the answer should be. I do think yeah. the circumstances dictate the organization um, matters, who they are, what they do, uh, and your employee base matters, right? So I, I think there's a lot of different factors uh, that play into that, but it is different because there certainly was a time where nobody would have ever expected right. any corporation right. of any size to take a position on anything, really, um, if it wasn't directly related to the core you know, business uh, that, that the company operates, right? Yeah. That is a so huge difference. It is. And I think it's sort of this blending of different segments of societies, if you of society, I should say, if you will, to um, address some of these larger issues that are facing the world. And I think it's also a matter of empowerment, um, you know, from the employees in terms I think of it's also a platform, voice right? So there's platform. never been so many ways for um, the public, your customers, your stakeholders, your investors. Um, to to be heard, right? We've got social media has just completely changed the landscape in terms of providing broader platforms, right? Um, for for organizations to have to absorb what some of the perceptions might be about them, and so it changes yeah. the profile and the risk profile from a reputational standpoint in a way that didn't exist, you know, twenty years ago. Yeah. So one of the things though that I think rings true, and you you mentioned this too, is if a company can always start with what are our values, what is our purpose, uh, what is our culture, and use that as the touchstone to then figure out, okay, what 
if anything is the right thing for us to do or say on this particular issue, you'll probably find their way, but not if it doesn't start with a strong core, right, of, of right. values and purpose and who they are. And core to all of that um, for a company uh, that wants to have a strong culture is going to be maintaining that speak up culture. You know, allowing people to even put the issues on the table that, you know, need to at least have an audience for um, somebody to hear what the concerns are and to listen and, if necessary, to uh, investigate it. So um, what have you learned by being at all of the companies you've been at so far, Amber, about how to build a good, strong speak up culture? You know, I, I, I'm still learning, right? Um, because I think that it is it is hard to speak up. And I think probably what I've learned the most is that it's never, you can't really ever make it easy. You can provide channels, yeah. make it easy to communicate, but people have to make an individual choice to speak up. And that's the part that I think um, is the hardest to tap into, that how do you instill um, safety Right. Um, that helps people to tap into their courage um, because you cannot make people speak up. No, no. Um, and there are lots of reasons that people don't speak up. A lot of them have nothing to do with the organization. Some of it has to do with how we were raised, right? Something that we're bringing uh, into the workplace that might make us reluctant um, to raise our hand and speak, right? And some of it may just be disposition and personality. If right. a person is more introverted, they may just be less likely to speak up. So I think it's really trying to figure out what are the different ways um, that you can pay attention to how people show up and what they bring uh, in terms of disposition, personality, um, their own personal culture, um, to make it easier for them to speak up in various ways. And sometimes that is through another person who might be more courageous, right? And so how do we yeah. say to all of that, like all of that is a good way of, of driving a speak up culture. Like it's all not formal. Sometimes it's informal, but how do you then create um, a path for that informal sort of speaking up to turn into something that the company can then become a form, informed about and act upon? Um, so I, I think figuring out like, where do you tap into groups, um, teams, um, you know, whether they are the affinity groups within organizations. Like, I think it's, it's what I've learned is that you cannot, you can't just have your formal program right. and publicize that and train people and think that that's going to get you. It's all just you be. right. There was a recent report um, that just came out about the importance of psychological safety within organizations to help create this sense that you can speak up. But the, the interesting finding there is that the further up you rise in an organization, your sense of safety within the organization uh, increases. And therefore, you can, leaders can end up with a uh, almost a, a you know, rose-colored glasses or blinders on to the way the rest of the organization may be feeling. 
because they feel safe. So if, if they're the leader of the organization or, or near the top and they feel safe, well, then surely everybody feels safe because I do, right? So this recognition that there is a, a difference in psychological safety and how someone feels as they move up in an organization, I think is a pretty important finding because it hits on what, what you just said. It's like, you really have to push against that as a leader, I think, to make sure you stay in touch. Lots of different ways to do that. But, you know, going down in the organization, through the resource groups that you mentioned, you know, skip level meetings, having just like pop in yeah. on meetings from time to time so people see you and see that you're accessible and that you care and that you want to know, that alone can can sometimes break through that, oh my God, I don't, I don't know how to talk to a senior leader about something. Right. Um, so yeah, those are really, really important points. So all that then comes back to, I think I'd like your opinion on whose job do you think it is to maintain a strong speak up culture in a company? Everybody's. Yeah. I think, I think so. it's everybody's. I, I, certainly people who are leaders uh, of people um, have direct supervisory roles. I think a greater impetus yeah, uh, and burden on folks who are leading teams yeah. uh, to drive that down. But it is everybody. I mean, um, the idea that any one department function person um, could be the sole sort of carrier of providing psychological safety to an entire organization um, so that people will speak up. It, it's it's not really realistic mm -mm. Uh, or feasible. Mm -mm. And so I, I think, you know, figuring out how do you even um, communicate that all of us own responsibility for yep. um, creating the culture, maintaining yep. the culture, improving the culture without, and it doesn't have to be critical, right? Like saying that we want to be better doesn't mean that we're bad. Um, right. But it's a journey, the, right? And it's it's a journey. So certainly ethics and compliance work is continuous improvement, mm -hmm. which means we have to stay curious to things that may not occur to us. And so when you talk about um, sometimes there are some blind spots about um, people in different positions, not necessarily recognizing um, anxiety, fear, reluctance uh, associated with speaking up. Some of that is just about being curious right? Yeah. about what can I do to make sure we are reaching everybody, yeah. the language that we use right. um, uh, in our communications. But to your point also, where do you show up and, and be visible? And then how can you show up in, in ways that are not always formal um, that make it easier? And then how can you make sure that you're communicating that you, that you want to deputize the entire organization to also uh, be part of receiving information? But I, I think also part of it is like, how do you get folks to ask the next question? Yeah. Right. Sometimes what happens is somebody may say something that may give you an indication that they really want to tell you something and they decide whether or not to, to take the next step to actually disclose based on how you react. You know, this kind of thing happened yesterday and it made me a little uncomfortable. You're like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So what are you focused on today? Well, that's the end of that, right? Versus well, tell me a little bit more about that, right? Like it's just some of it is it's very small signals. Um, that we can send um, that can change whether people really believe that it's safe um, to share things that they're afraid to share, right? Yeah, that is a key point, that sort of active listening um, to pick up on the signals. And it, the other thing that, I, that I'll add to that is 
Those comments are typically made in about the last two to three minutes of a meeting. <laughs> when, you're, when you're trying to wrap up. Correct. And and, and so leaders really need to dial in on that, allow a little extra time at the end of meetings and understand that that is typically the time that somebody's finally going to say what may be weighing on their, on their heart. And so the, the, because of time pressure, the immediate reaction may be, oh, I'm really sorry about that. What are you focused on today? Because they're focused on, I got to get to my next meeting without realizing that that may be the most important part of the meeting is the fact that that person just said that and allowing the time to follow up on it. Um, it couldn't be any more important. So it's a matter of kind of recognizing that as well, right? Yeah. And how do we, how do we sensitize uh, folks to that, right? Because there's always so much to do. I know. And it's very, very important. And how can we make sure that we're also valuing the space for the gray that we're not anticipating? Right. Yeah. Um, and so for people who, who do the kind of work that we do, we understand that our days can be disrupted at any time. Um, <laughs> and typically your are. may shift and your calendar may, yeah. may be derailed. Um, but, uh, but in certain parts of the company, there may be roles where that's not really how it works. And so it can yeah. be really uncomfortable to figure out like, so now I have to shift for this. Um, and then how do organizations make sure we are creating incentives um, for that to be okay? Yeah, right, uh, right. Right. So if you get behind on something because of something that someone raises that you then realize that you need to address, like that doesn't become something that gets penalized, right? Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So Amber, another topic that I wanted to touch on with you um, is related to bias in the workplace and how do you speak up if you actually see that? And interestingly, um, two things. One, you've you've written um, an article about that in Harvard Business Review that I think was fabulous. And so we'll, I want to talk about that. But to set the stage for that, it's also really interesting that the Ethics and Compliance Initiative uh, found in their most recent Global Business Ethics Survey that favoritism is actually one of the main types of misconduct that individuals observe um, within a company. And, you know, there could be a lot behind that particular statement um, and a lot of, I think, iterations. And we all know we are individuals and we come to work with sometimes, you know, our own perceptions of the world, which can make it look like favoritism to others, but maybe it's not. But then there are situations where it's pretty clear and, and you can tell that there's favoritism. Um, happening at work and who the boss may continue to go to to get work done or you know whatever whatever it may be who they say hey let's go grab a cup of coffee with and you know it 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 starts to become a pattern sometimes so this is and i think that that can be really detrimental to a speak up culture which is one of the things that you addressed in this incredible harvard business review article that you wrote a few years ago back in 2017 and what i liked about it is that you provided some tips in the article for individuals about why, starting with why they should speak up if they see bias at work. So if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about what, what prompted you with the idea to write that article, and then you can go into some of those tips, because I think it was, uh, it was a great time to do it. Thank you, Cindy. I appreciate that. I um, What prompted me was, frankly, I was invited to weigh in on uh, someone else who was asked to write an article and, and thought it would be helpful to have a perspective 
uh, from a woman of color. And so that's why I was even invited to weigh in. And um, I, I saw a unique opportunity to use my voice um, and to share my perspective that that might be helpful because I do think that um, there are different elements of who we are that makes, in some cases, make it may make it more difficult um, to speak up. And, you know, bias is, is loaded, right? So when you um, ever raise anything where you assert, allege that there may be an element of bias, it, it immediately charges um, the entire conversation, right? And, and so, I, but I think we need to be honest about that, right? And so you can't even address how do you help people speak up if they're concerned not only about the thing they're speaking up about, but they also are concerned that there's another element to that. Not that it's just, there may be favoritism, but then there's favoritism against people who don't look like me. Correct. Right. Or who don't share my sexual orientation, right? Like all of those things are, that it's another sort of layer. And it also means that I have to talk about that, about myself. And maybe that's not something I like to lead with. Right. Um, and so I think all of those things, I think we're more comfortable today, for sure, in 2022, having open conversations about the role of bias, yeah. acknowledging that um, difference makes a difference in the workplace right. than we were in 2017, uh, in large part based on events that of 2020. Yeah. Um, but, but it's not new, right? It's just that now it's maybe more likely to be able to be open acknowledged. But I, I thought it was it was really important to put it on the table that it is hard and there are costs and there are risks associated with speaking up. And But if you don't do it, the costs are, I think for you personally, really? yeah. right? Like you, what do you lose in yourself uh, by not standing up for yourself? What does your organization lose by not understanding that it may have a problem that it needs to address? Yeah. Right. And if everybody, because, and sometimes we think somebody else will speak up because right. somebody else sees what's happening. But if everybody takes the position that if somebody else will do it and nobody does it, right. Right. And your organization never gets better. That's right. That's right. That's right. Because everybody's looking for somebody else to finally do it. And, and if nobody does it, there's a bit of the group think where it yeah. just doesn't happen. Yeah. And then, and then somebody, sometimes there's somebody has to be first. Um, and, we, and we've got so many, you know, fantastic examples of history of, of folks that are sort of, you know, they, 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 at least from what we see, right, like they're the well publicized, there are always usually some quieter things that, oh, yeah. that don't make the news, right? Yeah. Or, or, but that somebody has to do that. And I, I think sometimes questioning, asking ourselves, like, why can't it be us? Um, it's sort of about what are the costs? I think there are personal costs. And I think there are organizational costs to staying silent um, and sucking it up. Yeah, um, that that make you less productive at work because you're distracted by the thing you're not addressing, um, which impacts the company. Um, and and I mean, I I truly believe in a lot of situations, people are not aware of their biases. They are not aware of perceptions that others might have. Um, and so I think starting the conversation, but giving people actionable tips and advice. And, and for me, some of that probably is just a reflection of advice I've been given throughout my career and things I've tried. Uh -huh. right? And so, you know, I, I don't know that when I talk to somebody else that I think that that's just what we're usually inclined to do is find somebody we trust. And I say, I think this is happening. What do you think? Do you, am I blowing yep, this yep. up? Is it out of proportion? 
is this, do you think I should do something about it? If I need to talk to somebody about it, like who would I talk to? How might I have that conversation? Like some of those things are natural things for us to do. Um, but to be intentional about it related to things that matter, um, in terms of what might be misconduct, right. Inappropriate behavior or just cultural behaviors that undermine um, the company's values. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I also liked some of your other tips about, in addition to asking questions, right, of others, which is very, very helpful, but, you know, keeping a cool head about it, creating the opportunity for dialogue, like what mm-hmm. you said, some, some, not everyone is aware of their biases, right? And so creating an opportunity for dialogue about it can have a number of, of great uh, outcomes. You can help the individual become more aware, others, if you're doing, doing it in a, in a setting where others are around, we'll see, oh, so, so this behavior isn't just acceptable. And here's somebody who's willing to address it. That empowers others to feel comfortable doing the same, right? And if you don't do that, then it kind of creates the impression that the behavior is acceptable. And then things just will continue down, a, down that path. And pretty soon a culture can veer off in the wrong direction. Um, and you haven't helped the individual become aware of their biases. And part of you right. has not been true to who you are in terms of being able to speak up. So there was a lot in that article to unpack. And I'm really glad that you wrote it. Well, thank you. I, I do think the, I think we undervalue the importance of disrupting things yeah. by using our voice, right? Like you may not get an immediate resolution that is in line with what you would want, but just raising the issue often is enough for someone to take a pause. Mm-hmm. Or to have a conversation with someone to say, like, I'm not sure if you're aware without even saying that I think, think the person's doing it, but there is a perception right. of this thing, which sometimes is a spark that, you know, that drives change may, may not always be as quick as, as, uh, as everyone would want, but there is power in disruption through voice and speaking yeah. up. And, and I think um, there is a quote that I, that I love that says um, the most common way people give up power is by believing they don't have any. And, and so I think about that all of the time, that we often cede power that we didn't know we had by being quiet uh, when, we, when we are able and have the opportunity to use our voices. And sometimes that's not an invitation. You have to you know, proactively um, create the opportunity for yourself to be heard. Um, but that is a power we all have. And, and I, you know, I, I think part of my, my purpose is to make sure people understand that so that they can, they can raise concerns. And certainly within the role that I have, um, I want, we want, the company cannot address things it doesn't know about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is a fabulous piece of advice to end with. I'm glad you ended that. I didn't even have to ask the question, like what advice would you, (laughs) you threw it out there. And that is very, very powerful. I love that advice. That's great. Well, Amber, this has been fabulous, really great conversation. And I just appreciate you sharing your time with us today and your thoughts and, uh, and your wisdom. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a great pleasure for me as well. Great. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Business Integrity School. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcast by simply searching for the Business Integrity School. Be sure to subscribe and rate us and tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.